Have you ever heard a story, a fable told round a campfire to frighten children, and for just a moment you wondered if it was true? Maybe a part of you wanted it to be true, even if it meant trading the safe and mundane world you knew for something stranger, something darker. Here, truth and fiction might be one and the same. We invite you to take a walk with us through these haunted hollows. Part One, The Thorn. In a village, there lived a young man. That in itself was hardly remarkable. There were a number of villages arranged throughout the wide countryside, and in them lived a great many young men. Some were clever, some were athletic, while others had a talent for music or cooking, or for shepherding the flocks that scattered across the green hills like grains of rice spilled upon the ground. Others still possessed none of these qualities, and were instead pleasantly normal in every sense of the word, one of many in a crowd. This young man was not defined in any of these ways. For despite the best intentions of his father and the best efforts of his mother, he had grown to be selfish and callow, utterly lacking in any gentleness of spirit. He could mask his disposition when it suited him. He learned how to flatter and impress, how to mime the concern and warmth that others seemed to care so much about. How pathetic they are, he would think, to be so easily taken in by words, by the imitation of kindness. They are so convinced of an inherent goodness in the world that they will perceive it even within its mockery. It was in this way that he beguiled the attention of a young woman. She was kind and naive and only saw what he wanted her to see, only believed what he wanted her to believe. Their relationship was formed and things continued on in that way for some time, but eventually the cracks in his facade began to show. His small words of disdain, infrequent at first, grew into daily disparagement. His actions, once merely thoughtless, grew into intentional violence. It did not trouble him. After all, why should he have to grovel for that which was rightfully his? Why should he be forced to repress his own nature merely to placate a weaker creature? Then, one evening, he returned home to find an empty house and a note upon the table. There is a rot within you, read the note. I will not allow it to infect me any longer. The young man's rage was incandescent. How dare she reject and humiliate him in this way? Did she think he would allow it? Did she think he would slink away like a wounded animal? No. She would get what she deserved. Of that he was certain. And it must be something more painful than words, more terrible than mere violence, something cold and black and wicked. A memory came to him then, rising to the surface of his mind like a corpse in a river. His grandmother's voice, a story told by the fireside when he'd been a boy. If you are ever to suffer a great injustice, his grandmother had said, you must go to the honey locust tree. As she spoke, the firelight had glinted off the needle she held in her gnarled hand, and he had watched it move across the fabric, in and out and in and out. Go to the forest in darkness and carry neither lantern nor torch. Bring only the name of the one who has wronged you, held firmly in your heart and written on a piece of parchment. Then you must find the oldest honey locust tree in the wood. 
spear the parchment upon its blackest thorn, and then as surely as the winter night comes, shall darkness befall the one whose name is pierced upon the tree. The young boy had considered her words. Then he had asked, But grandmother, how will I know if I have found the oldest honey locust tree? His grandmother had chuckled, a dry sound like the rustling of dead leaves in the wind. Oh, my child, it is the tree that shall know you. For all his life, the young man had dismissed his grandmother as a superstitious old fool. Now, he found the story was taking root in his mind, feeding on his rage and his hatred until it ripened into the sour fruit of compulsion. It grew and grew until he could think of nothing else, until he had convinced himself that, yes, there was justice to be found in the dark undercurrent of the earth. The young woman deserved the punishment that would come from the edge of the forest's blackened sword. He went to the forest that very night. For hours and hours he stumbled through tangled thickets. His feet caught on the rocks until he tripped. His clothing snagged on the brambles and it tore, and he cursed the night and cursed his grandmother, but most of all, he cursed the young woman who had forced him upon this path. It was the thought of her that drove him ever deeper into the wood. Oh, how he wanted her to suffer, to regret the day she had made such a mockery of him. And so his anger burned and burned and grew hotter with each step he took upon the earth. He did not know how far he had walked, or for how long. He only knew that the tree must be around just one more corner, must be down the next path. Thus he did not feel surprise when he crested a small hill and the tree was there. He felt only a sick sense of joy as he looked upon the honey locust tree, set apart from the rest of the forest and bathed in flimsy moonlight. It was the largest of its kind he had ever seen, its branches bare and its trunk covered with clusters of long, sharp thorns. The young man approached the tree and withdrew the scrap of parchment from his pocket. The young woman's name was writ upon it, and the ink almost shining beneath the pale light of the moon. A fragment of a thought occurred to him as he stepped to the foot of the tree. He had the faint sense that perhaps he was not remembering his grandmother's tale in its entirety, and indeed that her tale had continued past the point of his recollection. If you embark upon this task, you must beware, his grandmother had said words now cast aside and forgotten. For above all else, the honey locust tree is discerning. If your cause is not just, if you invoke its wrath unfairly, then it will bring its horror down upon you tenfold, and nothing in this world or beyond will be able to wrench you from its grasp. If the young man had been wise, he would have paused would have carefully unspooled the thread of memory from his tangled mind and examined it in full. If he'd been kind, he never would have entered these woods that night. But the young man was not wise, and he was not kind, and with nothing left in his heart but a rotten, terrible hatred, he speared her name upon the thorns. The young man's story isn't over. I think we all know that the honey locust tree isn't finished with him yet. More on that to come 
But for now, we have a new question. When is a story not a story? When someone passes a tale down to their children and their children's children, how can we separate history from myth? Stingy Jack. When I was a kid, I lived on my grandparents' farm a few miles from the Missouri-Arkansas line. My grandfather's father, Buck, lived on the farm as well in an old one-room cabin. After school, sometimes I'd walk down to the cabin to play checkers with him and listen to his stories about growing up in the Ozarks. Buck had a lot of stories, but I was always drawn to the ones he would tell around Halloween. The stories about conjure folk and water witches, spirits and devils, holy rollers and fortune tellers. One in particular has always stuck with me, the story of Stingy Jack of the Lantern. Now, I know this is an old story. It's been told in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. But this is the way I heard it from Buck and the way he said he heard it from his grandfather. Do you know why we carve a lantern to set out every year? It ain't for fun. It's a tribute to the only man who was smart enough to beat the devil, old Stingy Jack. Now, Jack was a mean and miserly son of a bitch. He lived way back in the holler as far away from people as he could get while still being close enough to trade. There were only three things in this world that he loved. The pitiful shack he called home, the rough-hewn chair he had fashioned in one of his rare sober stents, and the old apple tree behind his shack that gave him apples to make his brandy. One day Jack was making the long walk back from the trading post to his shack when he spied a figure laying face down in the ditch. It may have been an uncharacteristic burst of pity, Or it may have been that Jack spied and coveted the fine boots and cloak the stranger wore. But either way, Jack pulled the stranger up, roused him to consciousness, and offered his shack for the night's shelter. The figure from the ditch showed a beatific smile and suddenly shed its weary countenance. I am an angel, Jack, and this was a test from God to see if you were truly as miserly and stingy as you seem. Now that you've shown your true heart, I'll grant to you three wishes. Jack didn't question this. Three wishes seemed only what he deserved, after all. He thought for a moment and said, Thank you, Angel. I have my three wishes. I wish for you to strike dead any son of a bitch who knocks on the door of my shack, sits in my chair, or plucks an apple from my tree. The Angel grimaced in shock. I am honor-bound to fulfill your wishes, but know this. A miserable bastard like you will never gain entry into heaven. The holy gates are shut tight to you. Then it disappeared in a flash of light. Jack chuckled to himself and thought, I wasn't likely to end up there anyway, but at least now I know my shack, chair, and apple tree are mine alone. A few years passed. Jack was getting older, and the years of drinking himself to sleep every night with apple brandy were not kind. He started carrying a wooden cross around in his wallet in a futile attempt to show the angel he had changed, just in case it was still watching. One day, as he was stumbling toward the trading post, tired of apple brandy and looking for a stronger drink, he spied a figure lying in the ditch again. Jack remembered the angel and thought perhaps he could get himself another wish. He turned the figure over and reeled back. What lay beneath the hat and cloak was not the beautiful face of an angel, but a face that seemed made of knives and hatred. The devil cackled and said, Jack, it's time. I've come to collect you and bring you down to hell. Thinking fast, Jack said, Devil, I I know it's my fate to come with you, but would you not share a drink with me in the trading post up the road? The devil pondered this and decided his throat was a bit dry. The two walked up the path, saying nothing, and entered the post. After Jack had ordered two jars of moonshine, he turned to the devil and said, Devil, I have no coin on me, 
but I would add to my list of sins. If you turn yourself into a silver dollar, I can pay with you. You can disappear from the man's pocket and add thieving to the list of things to punish me for. The devil gave him a broad grin full of sharp teeth and agreed, thinking what delicious extra punishment he could mete out to Jack for this. He changed himself into a silver dollar while the shopkeeper's back was turned. The second he changed, Jack pulled out his wallet and stuck the silver dollar into it right next to the cross and clapped it shut. The devil couldn't change shape or move with the cross burning directly onto him. The shopkeeper heard the terrible scream coming from Jack's wallet and fled. Jack calmly finished both drinks while the devil wailed. When it had finally calmed down, it said, Jack let me out of this prison and I'll not bother you again for another ten years. Jack grinned and plucked the cross from his wallet. The devil shot out of the wallet and through the window like a bullet from a gun, yelling, I'll see you in ten years, Jack. Ten years passed. Jack got no less stingy, although he started carrying around a few more crosses in his pockets, just in case the angel was still watching. One night, Jack heard a knock at his window. He looked out to see the face full of knives and hatred and knew his time had come. Come knock upon my door, devil, and I will come out with you. The devil was expecting a trick this time. It could sense the presence of an angel waiting to strike down anyone who knocked on Jack's door. It simply reached through the window and dragged Jack out by the collar. Wait, wait, devil, for outsmarting you the first time, surely you'll grant me a dying request. Will you go up into my apple tree and fetch me one last apple? Now the devil knew this to be a trick as well, but he grinned mockingly and said, As you wish. He grabbed Jack and dragged him past the tree where the angel was waiting to strike down any who plucked an apple, and to a tree about half a mile up the path. He started to climb up into this tree, knowing it was safe, and thinking he had won, when Jack sprang up off the ground and placed crosses from his pockets all around the base of the tree. The devil was stuck. He couldn't come down without touching a cross, and this was something he could never do willingly. He gnashed his teeth and let out a great scream. Eventually this tree will die and fall, or someone curious will pick up a cross, or the wind and rain will blow one away. This won't hold me forever. Jack grinned and said, I know it won't hold you forever, but it'll hold you a good long time, and you will hate every second of it. I'll let you down if you promise me that my soul will never enter hell, that you will shut the gates of damnation to me. The devil thought this through. Was one pitiful soul worth the ten or twenty years it may take him to escape this trap? Fine, he spit. Your soul will be forever barred from hell. Jack moved the crosses, and the devil disappeared in a flash, dropping an apple from the top of the tree. Jack ate it thoughtfully. Now, while the devil may not have been able to claim Jack's soul, he was still a miserable old man who'd spent his life drinking, and it wasn't too long before his heart gave out and he died sitting in his favorite chair. First, Jack's soul ascended to the pearly gates. Jack recognized the angel sitting at a great banquet table just outside, eating an apple that looked to be from Jack's tree. The gates of heaven are closed to you, Jack, it said around a mouthful of apple. Go down to where you belong. Jack felt himself pulled downward, but before he could fall, he grabbed for some food from the banquet table. His hands closed around the first thing he could grab, a pumpkin. Then he was shooting down, down, past the heavens and the earth into a fiery pit. He saw that familiar face full of knives and hatred staring at him through the gates of hell. 
Oh, Jack, groaned the devil. I'll keep my promise. The gates of hell are shut to you as well. No afterlife wants you, and your soul will be cursed to wander the twilight earth between heaven and hell. Now, be gone. He threw a coal of hellfire at Jack to get him to move along. Jack, ever the quick thinker, caught the coal on the pumpkin and said, Thank you, devil. This'll do me fine as a lantern. Then his soul, carrying a lantern made from the gifts of both heaven and hell, wandered off into the darkness. If you ever see a light moving in the woods at night, particularly at this time of year when the line between our world and the next is blurred, don't follow it. It's likely old stingy Jack carrying his lantern. He isn't going anywhere you need to be. But as miserable a bastard as he was, he was still the only one crafty enough to beat old Scratch at his own game. Wandering the twilight forever isn't heaven, but it isn't hell neither. The next time you carve a pumpkin, spare a thought for poor Jack of the Lantern, and hope you can escape the consequences of your deeds half as well as he did. The forest is ancient, and there are unseen things that linger in the hills. Some are benevolent, some are cruel, and all will still be here long after we're gone. If the old tales are forgotten, how can we call upon the kindness of the woods in our time of need? And if our ancestors' wisdom is lost, how can we protect ourselves from the forces that would seek to do us harm? We may never know, but we hope you'll join us on our search for answers amongst these haunted hollows.